KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Can California enlist private citizens to enforce its ban on assault weapons? It really depends in part on how these cases end up percolating up to the Supreme Court. I'm Andrew Bowen with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. California faces a legal setback in its effort to phase out private prisons. These private companies that are being pushed away from the federal prison system are simply shifting to immigration detention. As COVID cases continue their downward trend, we ask experts whether the pandemic is really over. And a former federal inmate from San Diego wins an award for prison writing. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Gun rights advocates have filed a lawsuit challenging a California law that would allow private citizens to sue manufacturers of illegal firearms. The law was explicitly modeled off of an anti-abortion law in Texas, a law aimed at outsourcing enforcement of the state's abortion ban onto private citizens. Joining me now to help unpack some very complex legal questions about this news is Dan Eaton, a constitutional law expert and partner at Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vice. Tech. Dan, welcome back to the show. Sure, good to be with you, Andrew. Can you start off by telling us about this legal challenging question here? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, actually, because, of course, it uh, the underlying lawsuit, uh, the original lawsuit, is a challenge to the Assault Weapons Control Act of 1989. This is an add-on challenge uh, to uh, this uh, law that was uh, just signed by the, the governor, uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, it, it's a SB 1327, which, uh, as you said, uh, authorizes, uh, it's modeled on the Texas Abortion uh, uh, Private uh, Enforcement Act. Uh, it uh, allows uh, for uh, a- attorney's fees uh, to be awarded against anyone who seeks to block the enforcement of uh, a California regulation on firearms. So this law was explicitly modeled after the Texas anti-abortion law. Governor Gavin Newsom said at its signing, if they are going to use this framework to put women's lives at risk, we are going to use it to save people's lives here in the state of California. So how are these two laws similar and what constitutional questions do they raise? Well, both laws uh, seek to, uh, at at least according to the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, seek to uh, chill the exercise of a constitutional right. Now, obviously, in light of the Dobbs ruling, uh, the uh, right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy is no longer recognized under the federal constitution. But what the plaintiffs, that is the uh, the uh, gun owners in, in this particular case, are saying, uh, the explicit reason for this law, SB 1327, is to chill the exercise of uh, Second Amendment rights to keep and bear arms by making it cost prohibitive 
uh, to uh, sue because if they lose, they have to pay uh, the government or whoever the defendants are attorney's fees if they lose on any cause of action under this uh, particular provision. And that effectively chills their First Amendment right to petition the government for redress of grievances. In this case, uh, the uh, grievance that their constitutional right to keep and bear arms is being unduly restricted. The law specifically targets manufacturers of illegal firearms. Can you unpack what that means in this context? Well, but that begs the question of what is an illegal firearm. And that is the uh, that is the issue at the heart of the uh, underlying uh, case that uh, this challenge to SB 1327 is part of, which is a challenge to the Assault Weapons uh, Control Act of 1989, which, of course, Judge Benitez originally invalidated uh, last last year and which now is being subject to reexamination uh, in light of the Bruin decision that the U.S. Supreme Court issued in, uh, in June of, of this year, uh, which held that you couldn't uh, regulate or you couldn't restrict uh, the right to keep and bear arms unless that restriction was in line with the text of the Second Amendment and historical traditions. Uh, so uh, the reason this is an issue is because California has a lot of restrictions on manufacturers that a lot of states uh, do not. And the fact is that what these uh, plaintiffs are trying to do is to invalidate uh, those uh, restrictions, and uh, they face uh, the potential of having to pay attorney's fees if they lose on any uh, potential cause of action. And that's why they're seeking to join their challenge to uh, of uh, SB uh, 1327 with their challenge to the uh, Assault Weapons Control Act itself. You mentioned the plaintiffs in this lawsuit are claiming that this California law is unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds. What's your take on that claim? Well, understand that the, the First Amendment part of this is the right to, uh, well, free speech for one thing, but also the right to petition government for redress of grievances, namely by filing a lawsuit to block enforcement of a firearm regulation. And that's the basis. See, it's very interesting because the challenge to SB 1327 is somewhat distinct from the uh, Second Amendment-based uh, challenge to the uh, gun regulations uh, themselves. Uh, but uh, that is the reason, because we're dealing about distinct rights, that the state anyway is opposing bringing these two, uh, two distinct claims together. And what the plaintiffs in this case, it's very interesting. What they're saying is, look, we won't even uh, amend our complaint to add a challenge to SB 1327 if the government of the state of California, you agree that you're not going to seek to enforce SB 1327 against us in this lawsuit, claiming uh, that it may be retroactive. And understand that SB 1327 doesn't even go into effect until January 1st of next year. So uh, there are a variety of issues that are going on as to whether this particular challenge even belongs in a challenge to a, an ongoing lawsuit challenging the, a gun regulation. So we've got a Texas law targeting abortion rights. We've got a California law targeting gun rights. Both of these laws seem destined to end up in front of the Supreme Court. Any idea, given where the court is at now, how they would rule on these two very different laws, but that are founded on the same principle? No, you don't know. You have to believe that the Texas law is on somewhat better ground in light of the Dobbs ruling which uh, eliminated the federal constitutional right of a woman to terminate her, her pregnancy. But that said, it really depends in part on 
how these cases end up percolating up to the Supreme Court. I don't think there's any question that one or both of these laws is eventually going to be heard and decided, uh, the, the validity uh, of these laws is going to be heard and decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. The question is, what is the posture in which these laws come before the U.S. Supreme Court? And really, uh, will the Supreme Court, in light of its Dobbs ruling, treat the Texas law, uh, which of course deals with abortion, differently from a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms that the U.S. Supreme Court has in recent years, indeed in recent months, only reinforced and bolstered by its rulings? I've been speaking with legal expert Dan Eaton. And Dan, thank you so much for talking with us today. All right. Good to be with you, Andrew. A California law that sought to ban private for-profit prisons in the state has been blocked. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals this week found the law unconstitutional. It's a major setback for immigration activists who've been fighting the government's reliance on private detention centers to hold migrants. Joining me to unpack this story is KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. And Gustavo, welcome. Oh, thank you, Andrew. What was the motivation for this law? Why did California see private for-profit prisons and detention centers as a problem? Well, they, they've been a problem for, for a long time and for multiple reasons. I mean, they, they have a history of bad behavior, mistreatment, uh, just poor conditions. And they, they really are just poorly regulated and lack basic transparency measures that you would get with other uh, public facilities. You know, in terms of poor regulations, and this happens time and time again, where anytime there's an incident in one of these prisons, uh, they're quick to point out that they passed their most recent inspection from Immigration Customs Enforcement. Uh, advocates point out that maybe that's a sign that the inspections aren't rigorous enough more as opposed to it being of a sign that there's nothing really wrong with the prison. And just in terms of transparency, uh, the public and the press don't have access to basic records that we would have with public prisons, right, in terms of filing requests uh, for documents and different data. There's also issues to access in both visitors and the press in some of these facilities. This law banning or attempting to ban private prisons in California was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2019, and it didn't take long to end up in court. So what did the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals say in its decision that blocked the law? Technically, just to back up a little bit, the the ban on private detention centers never really actually went into effect. Uh, The law AB 32 uh, established the ban, and technically speaking, that law banned new private detention centers from opening and phased out existing detention centers by 2028. Uh, What a lot of the companies did was they just extended existing contracts and and just made it so that they're not technically new, they're just operating longer. Uh, So I don't know of any detention center that was actually like shut down because of this. But you're right that it didn't take long for the Trump administration to sue California over this law. And it is important to point out uh, that Every advocate I spoke to also mentioned that the Biden administration chose to keep Trump's lawsuit going. They, they could have just stopped it. To your question about what the decision was, the Court of Appeals said California's ban on private prisons violated the Constitution's Supremacy Clause, which essentially states that the federal laws take precedent over state laws. The court claimed that AB 32 prevents ICE from using detention facilities in California. And with that interpretation of the law, 
the judges determined that California should not have that level of exertion over the federal government's detention operations. Gustavo, you mentioned President Biden chose to continue the lawsuit that was started by Trump. Biden campaigned on ending private prisons, and he signed an executive order not long after taking office that was supposed to phase them out. What's happened since that executive order was signed? Every advocate I spoke to was was furious at the Biden administration for not following up on that campaign promise. Uh, and actually, when I was reporting on this, I went to the Biden-Harris campaign website, which is still up, and saw that the promise is still there. Uh, just verbatim from the website, they, they say Biden will end the federal government's use of private prisons. And he will make clear that the federal government should not use private facilities for any detention, including detention for undocumented immigrants. Uh, you mentioned the loopholes. This ban on federal prisons is kind of seen at, through through two different lenses, right? One would be federal prisons, which would be where people who are convicted of federal crimes go. And the other one would be federal detention centers, which is for undocumented immigrants, many of whom have not been convicted of any crimes. Uh, the biggest loophole is that companies, these private companies that are being pushed away from the federal prison system are simply shifting to immigration detention. And that's not just physical detention. These companies are investing a lot of money and receiving millions in government contracts to monitor undocumented immigrants once they're released from detention centers and still have pending court dates. San Diego County has a private detention center, the Otay Mesa Detention Center. It's run by a company called CoreCivic, and it's had quite a few scandals in recent years, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, several. I mean, the, the most recent and one we wrote about and reported on here at KPBS is that a group of inmates filed a federal complaint alleging medical neglect and retaliatory use of solitary confinement. Uh, one detainee I spoke with said he complained about increasing back and neck pain for four months, and they wouldn't take him to a hospital. They said he had uh, arthritis. And by the time they finally took him to a hospital in El Centro, the, the doctors quickly realized that he needed immediate surgery, emergency spinal cord surgery, and he was going to have trouble walking. Also, this year in August, uh, three women accused staff at the Otay Mesa Detention Center of sexual assault. I mean, they said guards uh, groped them, performed unnecessary strip searches, and even forced themselves on them. And some of the listeners will remember that there were several outbreaks of COVID-19 in that facility, so much so that the ACLU sued CoreCivic, asking a court to release all the detainees because their their health was at serious risk if they stayed at that facility. Is there a next step for this lawsuit, or is California's effort to ban private prisons petering out at this point? There, there was, I mean, initially when you kind of hear this news, the, the initial reaction is like, oh, well, we'll appeal the appeal and take it to the Supreme Court. Uh, advocates I spoke to were quickly to point out that there's a conservative majority in the Supreme Court right now, right? And if the California Court of Appeals uh, rule this way, it's very unlikely that the Supreme Court, which is arguably a, a more right-leaning body, would view it differently. Um, but they're not letting them, they're not letting that stop them for, from this fight or this movement. Um, advocates are, are kind of shifting their attention, and they have been doing this for months now, to try to persuade Governor Newsom and the California legislature to shift resources away from private prisons. Uh, they get state funding through different means, like help with transportation and different things like that, and just reinvest in the communities that the prisons are in, right? A lot of these private facilities are in rural parts of California, 
they don't ha- they're seen as big job centers, but these jobs don't pay all that much. There's not a lot of opportunity to grow. And advocates are arguing that the state government could actually help by investing in these communities with higher paying jobs that would actually increase their quality of life instead of making them dependent on these private facilities that pay them really low wages for work that shows it kind of, it's not fun work, and it leaves even the guards with a lot of mental health issues after working there for a long time. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. And Gustavo, thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Cavanaugh is off. Like the rest of the country, San Diego County's COVID numbers have been trending downward over the past several weeks. The county entered the CDC's lowest risk tier for COVID in mid-September, just about the same time President Biden declared the coronavirus pandemic over. But with the downward trend for infections across the nation, some 400 Americans continue to die from COVID each day, and it looks to remain a part of our lives whether we like it or not. So if the pandemic is over, as the president stated, where are we now and where is COVID likely headed as we veer toward winter? We have three local experts who we've turned to over the course of the coronavirus pandemic to help us navigate these questions. Rebecca Fielding Miller is an epidemiologist and a professor in UC San Diego's School of Public Health. Corinne McDaniels-Davidson is a professor in San Diego State's School of Public Health. And Dr. Eric Topol is director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Welcome to all of you. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you, Jane. I want to set this up by taking a listen to what the president said when he spoke with 60 Minutes from the Detroit Auto Show back on September 14th. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, and I think this is a perfect example of it. Dr. Topol, I'll start with you. Is the pandemic over? Unfortunately, it isn't. Uh, we're, we're going to see more uh, of what we have been seeing. There's some very troublesome variants out there that have more immune evasion than the BA5 uh, that we had to contend with through the summer. We're already seeing a a significant uptick in the European Union. And you mentioned, Jade, that things are coming down in the U.S. overall and certainly in San Diego. But unfortunately, we're already seeing upswing in cases in the Northeast. And as you know, we don't track cases that well. So there's a lot of disturbing things out there that tell us, I think, pretty well that while the weeks ahead look okay, uh, we're in for some more trouble um, in the next couple few months. Corinne, what was your reaction to the president's statement? It was disappointment. It was uh, frustration. You know, I, I was actually at a conference when he made those remarks, and almost everyone at that conference was wearing masks indoors. And so I looked around and I said, well, we're all scientists here and, and we're wearing masks. And so just because where you might be, they're not wearing masks doesn't mean the pandemic is over. 
And people aren't wearing masks because no one is asking them to. When people are asked to wear masks, they do wear masks. And Rebecca, how about you? Yeah, I I really have to second both of those opinions. I think it's very clear um, that this is not over when it's pretty consistently the second and third leading cause of death across the country. Um, when so few children have been vaccinated or are likely to be vaccinated in the near future. And and I agree, it's it's a strange metric to say we're not asking anybody to wear masks, so nobody's wearing masks, so the pandemic is over. That's not how we typically measure infectious disease when we're doing a good job. Corinne, you know, the president's words came on the eve of an election, and it's hard to ignore how many people seem to be over the pandemic. Has politics been damaging to the public health strategy during this pandemic? I think we can't deny that it has been. I think that with when you have politicians who lead public health response or you have political appointees who lead the public health response, they're going to be influenced by politics. They're going to be influenced by polling. And it's strange because polling shows that when people are informed, they're actually willing to do a lot of the public health protections that we ask them to do. But I think that we've stopped talking about COVID and we're trying to minimize it going into the election so that it's not at the front of people's minds. And so, therefore, it's not at the front of people's minds and they're not wearing masks. And Rebecca, throughout the course of the pandemic, we have heard comparisons between COVID and the flu. How are they similar and where do they differ at this point? I think that one thing that's really important to think about in terms of COVID is, again, it's it's airborne. Um, and I will, and the flu is too, kind of in different ways. Um, I will defer completely to, to Dr. Topol on how things will play out with boosters and how that is similar to the flu. But it's true, you might have flu-like symptoms, you might have a headache, you might have respiratory issues, but the flu doesn't result in up to 20% of people who have the flu having long-term disability, right? The flu does not have these long-term cognitive effects that we're seeing in COVID. And so while in the short term, it might feel like, oh, this was just kind of a bad flu, the long-term effects are clearly a lot worse. And another really important difference is COVID has can have really strong effects on people between the ages of five and 65. Whereas for flu, we usually see the very young and the very old are at high risk. But I mean, I have friends in their thirties who have experienced stroke and pulmonary embolism who are otherwise very healthy and you don't get that with the flu. And if I could add to that, the other big difference is that we don't have seasonality with COVID. And I don't expect to see seasonality with COVID while we have transmission out of control and new variants emerging. With the flu, we have a particular winter season where we expect to see it. We can kind of predict what's coming and we try to tailor the the annual flu vaccine to that, but we don't have that with COVID and I don't see it anytime in the near future. Dr. Topol, what are your thoughts on the flu comparison? Well, those are some really essential points uh, that have been made. I think the long COVID which has still not really been unraveled with no treatment, no biomarker, uh, is completely different than what we see with influenza, of course. Um, and what is the good part comparing uh, flu and COVID is that we've done so much better against this virus. You lose perspective. There's never been a vaccine against flu that's 95% effective against infections, hospitalizations, and deaths as it was all the way through the Delta variant. It's only when Omicron came where we started to see the problems with infections and transmission not be in check by the vaccines. We never had a pill 
like Paxlovid, uh, the best we've had with with um, uh, flu has been uh, Tamiflu. That doesn't work that well. So, you know, this is a virus that we can triumph o- o- over. And that's why, you know, I'm so keen on nasal vaccines and pan virus vaccines, because we, we're st- we, we tend to think that it's as challenging as influenza, but we've already seen some things that show us that we can prevail. The problem that was just touched on is that it's still out of control. We haven't gotten ahead of the virus. It's not contained. You know, we got down to less than 12,000 cases a day in uh, June of 2021. And people said the pandemic is over. And then what happened? Um, so, you know, we, we've seen this movie before. And how many times do you have to see it before you, you know, say, wait a minute, the only way to know the pandemic is over, that is contained, is to look backwards and say, oh, we went all these months and things have been quiescent. Yeah, there's been some small outbreaks, but overall, you know, it really has been contained and under control. We're just not there yet. And different from the 1918-1919 pandemic with the flu, because that just petered out. Uh, in less time than this has gone on, of course, with no vaccines. So it's a totally different look. And, and Dr. Topol, you know, it's been about three weeks since the government rolled out new COVID boosters that target both the original strains of the virus as well as Omicron. But numbers released this week said only about 2% of eligible people have gotten it. Does that surprise you? Well, not really, because we've had a booster problem all along in this country. We're less than a half of the use of uptake of boosters in any high-income country in the world. Uh, so we've had a botch of our booster campaign. Uh, in part, that was our governmental agencies with infighting and reluctance to acknowledge how important boosters were because they thought that was going to interfere with the primary series vaccines and all sorts of issues. However, with this one added on to the problem that we've had uh, with booster acceptance. It was put out uh, without the data we a lot of people would like to see, which is the human response to this BA5 bivalent vaccine. We're going to see that, I, I understand, next week. That, I think, will help a bit. But also, when you tell the, the public, which is what they want to hear, of course, the pandemic is over, who's going to sign up for a vaccine when the panda, uh, booster, when a lot of people get you know a lot of reactions you know, in terms of uh, fatigue and you know, fever chills and all the other things that you get from having a shot. Who wants to get that when you're being told the pandemic is over? So uh, that doesn't help the cause. And so I think uh, hopefully we can get some momentum, but it it is concerning. Rebecca, given where we're at in the pandemic now, do you think we should start seeing this as a transition from treating COVID as a national emergency into something like heart disease or cancer, you know, deadly health issues that are managed without an emergency in place. To be honest, I I wish we did treat it with the urgency that we treat heart disease and cancer. Um, when when COVID is creating more long term injury than a lot of pre existing um, non chronic illnesses, and when when we see sort of the political will sapping away from addressing this when there is a moonshot um, initiative to address cancer, when one of the biggest public health issues in the county that the county has done really well on is addressing cardiovascular disease, I, I wish that um, we would address it with that urgency. And, you know, I, I understand that 
our public health force is tired and burnt out and I don't blame them. And I think that the lack of political will, the lack of positioning this with any urgency has really removed their ability to to push booster campaigns, to do the outreach, to continue the pop-up clinics and all of this. Yeah, I, I genuinely wish we treated this with the same urgency that we treat cancer. That would be lovely. Corinne, what are your thoughts? Well, with only 68% of people in the United States fully vaccinated, only 33% boosted, and and frankly, not knowing when folks got their boosters, that could have been almost a year ago that they got their boosters. We are not in a good position to come out of the emergency because we're going to be faced again in the coming weeks and months with another surge. It is coming. And I think that taking away a lot of those protections and taking away funding for testing and vaccines and antivirals is a mistake leading into the winter. Mm. And Dr. Topol, as we mentioned, San Diego's COVID numbers have been trending in the right direction, but we have been on something of a roller coaster over the past few years. What can you tell us about new developments as winter approaches? Well, roller coaster is a good term here. So we're going to get ready for the next ascent um, in the months ahead. You know, like I said, I think because the numbers are trending down here, we have some weeks ahead that will be relatively quiet. But unfortunately, uh, as we go forward, it's it's pretty clear there's a variant right now that's already past 12% in the country, BA4.6. I wish we had better names for these new variants, but that's what we have to, we're stuck with. And that one um, is really troubling because Evushel, which is what immunocompromised people rely upon to prevent infections and sequela, it no longer works against that. And also uh, people who've had a recent BA5 infection are going to be vulnerable. So the point that uh, was just made by Corinne about how the, uh, the lack of boosters and the high infection rates don't necessarily put us in a powerful position to withstand that variant. And then there's the other ones that are creeping up, like you know this one called BA.275.2. Uh, Point two. Now that one has got lots of trouble, and there's another one called BQ.1.1. I know these are hard to deal with these numbers and names, but they are far worse than what we've seen so far in terms of their ability to evade our immune response, which includes vaccines, infections, and their combination. So likely November, December, we'll have to contend with any one of these or combinations of these new uh, difficult variants. And as I understand it, numbers are slowly starting to rise in Europe again. Uh, What does that tell us? Well, they're not so slowly rising. They're going up substantially in several countries. Um, And it tells us, you know, what what happens in Europe doesn't stay in Europe. And every single time it comes here, Uh, not directly, of course, but it's the same story in, in terms of the the variants taking hold and then the winter months and, you know, more people inside the lack of mitigation measures for the reasons that have been discussed, all these things, you know, basically help the virus, give it, give it legs. And so what's happening in Europe will, will unquestionably recur here. The only thing we can hope for without taking more aggressive positions with better vaccines, uh, nasal vaccines and using mitigation is that maybe because of all the immunity wall that has been built, that hopefully it won't be as big a wave as what we've seen previously. Corinne, what public health strategies are you hoping to see from the CDC to manage COVID in the next few months? 
That's a great question. I'd love to see a recommendation that everybody test to exit isolation. I think that that is one of the most basic things that we can do. We can provide rapid tests to folks so that they can test negative twice before they exit isolation and go back out into the world. We can work on improving our indoor air quality. We can work on ventilation until we get ventilation improved. We can work on air filtration. These are simple things. Well, some of them are simple. Ventilation takes a lot more uh, uh, time and engineering efforts, but I think it is possible. We did a, you know, we had the rapid acceleration of diagnostics that we did at the beginning of the pandemic, but still ongoing, where we developed tests. We developed all kinds of things, and we can use that to actually improve our indoor air quality and to have a rapid acceleration of indoor air quality. We can also put in place some on-ramps based on transmission that we see in wastewater. We have a lot of wastewater testing. We should be using that to think about what added protections we need to add to protect those who are left vulnerable to this disease. And this is a question for all of you. When it comes to testing and masking, do you think our approach to those things should change, should, should be different now that these variants are different? Well, I think there's no reason to abandon these things. These are really helpful, as just outlined, uh, rapid testing. Uh, you know, we have a CDC that tells us five days is good enough uh, without the need for rapid testing, which is totally wrong. Rapid tests should be done, as already mentioned, and they're very helpful. And the average time we just published yesterday for these uh, people to not be infectious is between 10 and 14 days. So, um you know, what we've done in this country is actually promoted spread by having uh, non-data-driven practices uh, supported by our public health agency. But yes, the, the masks are really still important, high-quality masks, when indoors, um, they're, they're really important. And I, I don't go anywhere these days with seeing too many people wearing masks, unfortunately, indoors. Uh, it's a real problem. Rebecca? Uh, I have to second that. I think that... Um, it's really interesting, this, this narrative of um, sanitizing and hand washing caught on very early, and it, which you should wash your hands, don't get me wrong, but like, this narrative caught on very early, and it's it stuck in people's minds. And I think the narrative of, of it's airborne, you have to clean the air, you have to wear a mask, your quality of mask is really important. Um, for some reason, that has not had the same hook. But masking is one of the best things that you can do in the absence of all other structural things um, to protect yourself in the moment. And it's one of the best ways that you can demonstrate community care and make sure that other people around you are safe. And I think that we need to be very clear that, you know, those those fabric masks that we were all using early on, they were a great stopgap, but that is not what we need to be using right now. We need access to, everybody needs access to high quality, well-fitting masks that don't gap. Um, we need masks that fit children well, that are accessible. It's actually really hard to find a mask that fits a tiny face. Um, but masking and really widespread use of antigen testing are some of the most powerful tools that an individual can use to protect themselves or to protect a, a party or a conference or any other time they want to get together with their friends. Is there anything else anyone would like to add? No, it's just been great to have a chance to uh, participate in this discussion with uh, 
Rebecca and Corinne and you, Jade, I think uh, it's not the happy talk that people are hearing, but it's the real stuff. And uh, hopefully, you know, we eventually this will pass. Eventually we'll get to a very good point uh, in this whole ordeal. But unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. It is the reality check we all need, though. I've been joined by Rebecca Fielding Miller, professor in UC San Diego School of Public Health, Corinne McDaniels Davidson, professor in San Diego State's School of Public Health, and Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Thank you very much to you all for your insight and for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Andrew Bowen. Maureen Kavanaugh is off. PEN America recently announced the winners of their 2022 Prison Writing Awards. The awards recognize exceptional works from incarcerated writers that will be published in a forthcoming anthology. The first place winner for both the fiction and nonfiction categories is San Diegan Frank Kinsaku Saragossa. Saragossa was homeless in San Diego for several years before being taken into federal custody on drug-related charges. He was released last month and spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation. You were just recognized with two prison writing awards from PEN America, both for works that you wrote while incarcerated. Before we talk more about your writing process, can you give us an idea of what it is you write about? Sure. Uh, yes, I was uh, recognized by winning these awards, and it was a, a big surprise to me. Uh, I started writing in prison about my life in addiction and about my life living homeless on the streets. Um so I guess those are the topics I really cover in my writing, homelessness, addiction, and incarceration. And as you wrote these pieces, did you know at the time that telling these stories would benefit or reach more people than just you? At first, when I wrote these stories, I was really doing it for myself. Um, I used to be a college professor, um, and then I worked in social services for several years, I was in recovery for several years. And so from my perspective, I had a, I had a normal life. Um, and I was just trying to do the best I could in the world. Uh, and then one day it felt to me as if six years had gone by and I find myself in a federal prison facing many, many years, uh, a sentence of many, many years. And I didn't know how, how that happened. Um, and I had these memories of living on the streets, of getting high all the time, of the psychosis that comes with that, and of all the things I had to do to keep getting high. And it was just, you know, they would come out in dreams. They would come out in these memories that would just intrude at these strange moments. And so I just began writing them down kind of in a journal. Um, and then after a certain point, I decided that I really wanted these writings to find some kind of a life because I realized that what I was writing about was a community of people and experiences of people um, that are really difficult and that not many people write about. And so I thought this needs an audience. And so I was really trying to find an audience when I heard about the Penn Prison Writing Awards. 
So Life in Pieces is your work of fiction, and it's a patchwork of those fragmented memories of homelessness in San Diego. Can I ask you to read a little from the beginning of that? They call it the East Village. That made me laugh at first. I lived in Manhattan, and I know what the East Village is. This is not the East Village. I mean, it's got that space for art. It's got a cool performance space. It's got cool new bars and restaurants. It's got a gritty industrial vibe. There's a lot of new construction. But if you go far enough south and far enough east to the very corner of downtown, right where the East Village hits Barrio Logan on the south and Golden Hill on the east, where Vinny's is, St. Vincent de Paul's, and the Neil Good Day Center is, and the Alpha Project tent, that's San Diego Skid Row. It's the heart of darkness. It's where homeless people go to shoot up right in the street, out in the open. It's where everything goes down. So one of the things evident in your writing is this distinct relationship you have with the streets of San Diego, particularly in this fiction piece. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, at least for me, being unhoused, um, I live a life that's out in the open and on the streets. And it's funny because when I was housed in San Diego, um, I would go to the restaurants on the same streets. I had friends who lived in condos and apartments on the same streets. Um, and so I would walk to work or to Petco Park or to wherever I was going and walk on the exact same streets that I walked on when I became homeless. Um, but then when I was living on the streets, the same streets felt really different. All of a sudden there was, uh, there was so much more detail, so much more variety and so much more that they weren't just a way to get from point A to point B anymore. They became places where whole lives were lived, whole communities were formed and all kinds of things went down. Transactions, commerce, relationships, all kinds of things. Let's also talk about that line between truth and honesty, between fiction and nonfiction. What drove you to call this work fiction? Well, I think I mentioned earlier that this came back to me in dreams um, and uh, in memories that would intrude on me very unexpectedly and in times when I didn't want them. Because um, early on, when I was first incarcerated, I wanted to try to put all of this behind me and pretend it never happened. Um, so as I started to try to write it down, what became clear to me is um, I didn't remember if things happened in this particular order or in a different order. I didn't remember if, uh, if I said something or if somebody else said something. And then I also realized that, you know, when you're unhoused and you're on the streets and you're high all the time, or at least when I was high all the time, there'd be days and days on end where I wouldn't sleep. Um, and my life was in constant crisis and I wasn't eating regularly. And so I can't trust my memory or my cognition under those circumstances. And at the same time, because of using crystal meth on a daily basis, my mind was also in constant psychosis. And so you definitely can't trust what you think or what you remember under those circumstances. So I thought the only thing I can do is write what I believe to be true, represent my life and my experiences to the best of my ability, but I can't hold myself responsible for making sure that everything I say is factually correct because there's no way I can check. 
All I can do is do my best to tell the truth, but then just acknowledge the fact that um, my work is just right at that place where fiction and nonfiction meet. Um, and what I strive for is honesty, but I can't necessarily strive for factual uh, factuality. I wanted to go back um, to something you were saying earlier when we were talking about how did you know you wanted your writing to reach people outside of um, prison? The hope that was represented in what you had said there for someone who is in federal prison is is remarkable um, to want an audience and then to achieve it. How do you think you were able to muster that hope? Um. It's hard because the thing about being in prison is that you are cut off from society because I was locked up during COVID the entire time I was locked up. There were no visits. And so I guess if I didn't have hope that I could write and possibly get published, then I would have no hope at all. It gave me an opportunity to imagine a world bigger than my prison cell and really, that's what I want. You know, I want my work to have a life of its own and I want my work to reach people. I want to talk about and I want people to, to read about what is it like living unhoused on the streets. I want people to know a little bit more about individuals who become homeless um, and the communities that we form and the lives that we lead and the choices that we make and the reasons we make them. You know, um, I'm not trying to explain or justify anything. I'm just trying to tell the truth as I see it. And I hope that that truth is able to connect me with people in the world, not make me different or separate from them. Frank, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That was formerly incarcerated San Diegan Frank Kinsaku Saragosa, winner of two 2022 Pen America Prison Writing Awards, speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. You can read an excerpt from Saragosa's work on our website, and the anthology will be published this December. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.